What is your lot? Your lot in life. Have you, have you heard of this phrase? Like, maybe to describe some misfortune, well, this is just my, this is just my lot in life. You, you look at your life, and in a kind of sort of fatalistic way, a res- resigned way, you say, this is, this is my, my lot. Or, or maybe you're considering a friend, or, or better, maybe a sibling, and, and you look at them side-eyed. Why? Because their lot is not your lot, and their lot looks a lot better to you. We use lot to describe a couple other things. One place is land, like your lot. It has dimensions. Some have trees or a pool. Some sit on the back of a driving range. This is my lot. This is also something we have a green eye for. Your lot isn't my lot. The last place, a lot. Like, I have a lot of fill in the blank. They have a lot of wine. They have a lot of money. I have a lot of sickness. They have a lot of kids. A lot becomes an adjective describing how many, how much, a way of weighing value. And all the lots are like, we assess value by our lots. So what's your, what's your lot in life this morning? As you think about your life where you sit today, here in September, what's your lot? As we turn to Esther chapters 2 and 3, I want to lean into this idea of the lot that's given to Esther and Mordecai, and we'll be introduced to a new character named Haman. What is their lot? Like, like what have they been handed? What, what's the cards they've been dealt? We read here at the beginning of our text, Esther's lot is one of a young queen and a king, weirdly, still acquiring, it seems, a harem. She's been appointed as the queen, and yet there is still more women being acquired by her king. And she's, she's living a lie of sorts, hiding who she is. Maybe for reasons she understands or she doesn't, but her uncle and really her adopted father, Mordecai, has instructed her that her lot is a lot that remains hidden. He's either acting here in wisdom or fear or some parental nature of both. But all of this is meant to introduce us to Mordecai's lot. And that lot is introduced to us here in these verses as he is at the king's gate. We are told Mordecai, a Jew in exile, living in Persia, is sitting where? In this important place at the king's gate. The king's gate implies that Mordecai has a significant amount of power and authority. To sit at the gate doesn't imply that he's homeless or indigent. Rather, it implies... He's in a position of service to the king and to the empire. He may have been an important magistrate or judge or some other important figure, but he's 
He's been given a position of honor, and we aren't told why. But his lot is also like Esther. He's a Jew, not in their homeland, not on their way back to their homeland, not rebuilding temple walls, the walls of the city of Jerusalem, but here in Susa. And this lot that's been given to them ends up having an advantage, right? I mean, look at 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to kill King Xerxes. Mordecai, his lot, right time, right place, his position has put him in position to hear the whispers And this whisper is a plot on the life of Xerxes. And it's pretty incredible that this would be Mordecai's lot. Like, like don't miss, like, that Mordecai, who he is as a Jew living in Susa, has been ushered into this important place. And And these men who are angry and attempt to assassinate the king, Mordecai, ends up foiling the plan. This is Mordecai's lot. He reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king, giving Mordecai the credit. And after investigation, it's found to be true. And it's written down, and this will be important for later, but it's noted here at the end of chapter 2, it's written down in the annals that this is what happens. Now, as we show up on chapter 3, look at verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. Here, the lot given to Mordecai starts to shift, right? I mean, we're expecting... If you haven't read Esther, if you show up on the scene to read this book, you're expecting as you come into three, like like Mordecai's going to be honored. He's the master of whispers. But instead of honor, some other guy, Haman, is ascended. And Mordecai, we'll find out, is descended. A, A reversal that ends up shaping this book. Now, this is Haman's lot. And how does the writer introduce him to us? Haman, the Agagite. Now, hold that for just a second. Now, let's speculate how Haman might have been elevated in the wake of an assassination attempt, right? The king, worried, too many people, too many people know what's going on with him, too much knowledge about his inner workings of his kingdom. There is a threat. So he circles the wagons to make the circle smaller. And in some ways that's ironic because the wider circle led to the discovery of the plot. But what we must see is that Haman, acting as an opportunist, this is his lot too because he is also an outsider. As an Agagite, he is not Persian. He is outside the king and the kingdom. We're told Mordecai is an Agagite. And in Esther chapter 2, I I talked about this a a couple weeks ago, but we read about Mordecai. There was this Jew in Susa, the Siddal, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Mordecai, a Benjamite, 
Haman and Agagite. Now, maybe you're asking who cares, but in the narrative arc of Scripture, this is super important. Who is the most famous king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. In 1 Samuel 15.7, we read, Saul defeated the Malachites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Then, 1532, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Why was God so determined to wipe out Agag and the Amalekites? Well, we read in Deuteronomy 25, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, a lot to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget. When Israel comes out of Egypt, the Amalekites attack them and try to destroy them starting with the weakest of them, those at the rear, the the strugglers, the sick, the women, the children, targeting first the innocents in order to demoralize their enemy, Israel. Now this, this is crucial for us to understand the animosity, the tension between Mordecai and Haman and the lots that they've been given in their life. The tension is a continuation of Israel's story from from the redemption of Egypt as well as their conquest in the land of Canaan. It's a replaying of Saul and Agag as well as Israel and the Amalekites. This is what the Bible does. The Bible continues to do these loops, cyclical in nature, kind of bringing us back to these themes and the story over and over again, telling you, Lights are flashing, something's happening here that's bigger than just this story. Now, it's not without ambiguity as well. The the story of Saul was a story of failure. Like, Saul didn't accept his lot as king. He, He always wanted something more. He did not do what the Lord commanded. Pride in this king kept him from submitting to God. Even in this instance, he keeps Agag and all the sheep and the best of the oxen for himself. A king that's lot was filled with demands for respect while all the while not finding what he was seeking. Will Mordecai, now the question that is begged here for us as we read it, will Mordecai receive the same fate as Saul? 
when Saul refused to kill Agag. And what about this turn of events? Haman is now second in the empire next to King Xerxes. He's the prime minister of the king, the one who manages all the affairs of the empire. How is this going to turn out for Esther and Mordecai and the rest of the Jews? And so the stage is set. Verse 2, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, and he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, and instead Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman's lot, we see here, is a lot of absolute power. Notice, he's given title, position, honor, and power. And then homage, respect, maybe even from the people gathered, worship. But not by Mordecai. The royal officials see that Mordecai won't bow down. And as a note here, we aren't told why. Some have speculated that it's like a a Daniel-like scenario, not giving worship to a human. I don't think that's what it is. Maybe it's part of the story. He's an Amalekite. The hatred runs deep. Or maybe it's just the fact that he didn't receive the honor due him. It instead went to Haman. Either way, the text is clear. Mordecai is violating what? The king's decree. And everyone is noticing it day after day. What's up, Mordecai? Why aren't you complying? And the text, at least at this point, isn't holding Mordecai up for his refusal as a bastion of faithfulness who resists the evil of the kingdom. There's there's no indication here that what he's doing is even right. But day after day, he continues not to bow. And day after day, people start to ask. And there's whispers and murmurs. So they take it up the chain. Will this be tolerated? He's a Jew. And with this we read what? Haman is enraged. Haman shows us something about his lot. He gets exactly what he wants. He gets it on his own. He gets it without God. And what is the lot of a man who thinks that he's self-made? Well, pride. And we see this pride in the demand, the demand for respect. Haman's demand for respect, when not met with acquiescence, results in fury. Friends, pride's goal is to get the self to live out of relationship with God first and then others. There's this picture of hell in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce where, where people live in homes by themselves in the exact way they want them but with no one else around. And that's pride's aim. To make yourself so dominant 
that there's no room for God or anyone else. The self is never content with achievements, relationships, possessions, because they're always comparing or focusing on what they don't have. My lot is not enough. I want a lot more. It's unfair what you've given to me. I want what they have. Pride takes no joy in having or being anything, but pride like feeds on competition, on, on separating oneself from the other. This is why Haman couldn't handle Mordecai not bowing to him. And so I ask you again, friends, what is your lot? What do you not have that you currently wish you did have? What are you, what are you willing to do to get it? Now, now let's lean into this idea of respect. Because I think for many of us, what we're often after in our, our lives is respect, recognition, honor. Our lot, we think, would be improved if people would just recognize us, honor us. We, we wouldn't want, we say anyway, we wouldn't want a lot more if we had this. If only my spouse would respect me. If only my child would respect me. If only that coworker would like recognize what I do for this company. If only my parents would see how I've changed. I'm an adult now. If only my, my high school friends could see me now. My, my, my old love interest, that teacher. Now, it might be a trope. But there are these wounds that we get that shape us, beloved. Wounds that are so deep and so profound that we get, we get like Haman, maniacal, when we don't get respect. Now sit here for a second. A few weeks ago, I had you imagine your kingdoms. I had you close your eyes and think about you sitting on a throne, looking out onto a valley, and seeing faces of the people who are in your kingdom. And then placing them. Where are they in relationship to you? This is your lot. This is what God's given to you. As you peer out in the valley and see the faces of the people in your kingdom, why do you place them where you place them? Is it respect? Is it admiration? Is it recognition? Let's imagine you had ten children, and nine of them thought, man, Dad, you're the best parent in the world. But one of them thought you were terrible. The nine said, you're the most loving, patient, kind parent. But the one said, all you do is think about yourself. The only reason you discipline us is so we don't make you look bad to your friends. 
why do you think the parent's focus will be on the one? It doesn't make logical sense. The facts would lead us to conclude, well, this child is just wrong. But the facts don't matter when the self receives critique. In the face of such things, it must either hide or fight. We all have these arenas where we're disappointing something. We all have relationships where we're, we're not getting a fair return on our investment. We, we all have these places in our lives where we feel like we give and we give and we give and we get no thanks. We're all Rodney Dangerfield. This is dating me. I get no respect. No thanks. In fact, I'm just accused of being selfish. Think through it. Why can't you handle it when someone confronts you and calls you out? Why is it devastating to not get invited into that group of friends? Why is it so hard not to get the bid in your company? Why do you have 100 happy clients at work and 10 who are upset with you and you can't seem to sleep at night? Why? I'll tell you why. Because you want a better lot. You want respect. You want perfection. And it drives you. Haman is driven. He has all the praise and it still isn't enough. He's always on the lookout for a way to improve his lot. He takes no delight in the honor and respect he's already been given. He wants more. His story, his history is demanding something more to improve his lot. He knows his story. If they want to wipe me out, then am I not justified to wipe them out? Maybe this leads to some good introspection like for us as the church, I think it's very easy for us to feel morally better than others. That story plays. You develop this self-respect over your own like morality, your own judgments about what's happening in the world, how you sit somewhere and your lot is somewhat better and superior because you're superiorly moral. Perhaps this is the fuel that ignites Haman's rage. This, this, it's an insatiable attitude of the human heart and it won't stop, hear me, it won't stop till it dethrones God. Humans, Haman's rage leads him to thinking that he can command, command people's life and death. He calls for the extermination of all the Jews in Susa, and not just there, throughout the kingdom. And that leads to the last section. Look in verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the purr that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adair. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. 
Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. I think it's easy for us to like read that and not get the gravity of it. I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now notice the business-like nature of the rest of this text. The bureaucracy of it all. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with it. Do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out the script of each province and in the language of each of the people of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of various provinces, the nobles of various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adair, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to every people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. And the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. In a moment, the lot of the Jews, Mordecai, becomes one of total annihilation. What do we do with that? I mean, Haman makes some outrageous claims. He, he talks about the Jews being this people that is, they don't have a land. And he, he's actually saying something that's true there. And then he kind of tells a half-truth. They don't follow the king's laws. And then he tells an outright lie. Right? That's how propaganda works. Some truth. A lot of lies. But what's instituted is mass extermination. The lot is cast. What do we do with that? This week, if you know anything about what happened in Albuquerque, uh, a little kid is gunned down in a fit of rage just down the street from here. Was that his lot? What do we do with that? What's funny about this whole text is that it begins with what? 
the lot being cast, right? The lot is a die here. A dice is cast by Haman to set this plan in motion. He throws a dice to declare when this extermination was going to take place. Now, what's interesting about when it happens and when it's going to happen, it's, it's, it's a year out. We don't know why it's a year out, but preparation to, to generate even more fear, it's even more maniacal than you might think. And, and it happens, just so happens, that the announcement is made during Passover. Isn't that curious? The plan begins when the Jews practice the thing where they experienced redemption from slavery, from being wiped out from another king? Might this not be a hint that despite Haman's evil unbelief, God is not as far from his people as he might seem? This is very likely a kind of foreshadowing for the story from From this, we may be right to suspect that the the plan to destroy the people of God may in fact turn out to be a moment of what? Deliverance. And and maybe this is the lot that has been given to them as God's people so that what might be experienced and displayed is what? Redemption. In Psalm 16, 5 and 6, David sings, You have assigned to me, God, my portion, my cup, You've made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now this connects with the promised land. It's what the Lord secured for David and for consequently Israel. It's it's wrapped up in their destiny. And yet here, God's people are scattered. Some in exile, some have returned. Like the, the, store, the, the, the edict's gone out. It, it's not just happening in Susa. The extermination is to be all the Jews everywhere. And the world known. Have, have the boundary lines fallen in pleasant places? Is the inheritance delightful? Is this their lot? What about you? When you, when you think about your lot, when I asked you at the beginning, is that your fate? Your destiny? Like some of you sit here this morning experiencing deep and profound pain. Is that your lot? Is that the boundary line that's fallen for you? In your search for significance, in your search for rest, is this just your, your end, that you're just always going to be striving and always going to be struggling? When, uh, when the king asked uh, more, uh, Haman, will you give them rest? Like, will you give this people rest? And he says, no, I will not give them rest. Instead, I will give them destruction. The lot is in the hand of the Lord. We read in 
Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God determines, in other words, according to the proverb, how the lot falls. Even in the edict of genocide, even in exile in Persia, even when some have returned and some have, and even in Susa, even announced at Passover, the question, will God still deliver? Even from this Antichrist, Haman, no matter the Amalekites or death, hell, the devil, Even there, the Lord will deliver. How do we know? What was Jesus' lot? What was the lot given to Christ? Paul says he left heaven to come to earth, made himself low. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told the story of how his life was also tried to be snuffed out by a king, a maniacal king. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders plotted against him. He was hung on a cross. He he was numbered with the unrighteous. His lot was literally an unknown tomb given to him by some benefactor that was not his own. That was his lot. And why did God take on that lot? Why did he allow that to be the thing given to him? I mean, remember the the cross, like, as Jesus is saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, that The soldiers are rolling dice for Jesus' clothes. How do we make sense of the the shooting that happens? How do we make sense of genocides that are happening? How do we live into that? Is that just our lot? The only way, friends, that I know how is in the cross. Is that in the the life and death of Jesus and Jesus making himself vulnerable, exposing himself to the powers, being buried and considered amongst the unrighteous, that that was his name, cursed by God, by all who saw him hang on a tree. That is our God who suffered, who died, who took on that lot who receive from the Lord, and in exchange, as we, our life is given and entrusted to him in his life, his death, what becomes our portion in our inheritance? He does. He becomes your portion. He becomes your lot. So all those things, what's your lot in life? What, what is it? What's my portion? He's your portion. How do you know? The suffering that you're going through, that a lot of you are going through. He's with you. How do you know? Because he suffered. He suffered, and he's suffering with you, and he is going to redeem it. 
And he'll be the sweet, sweet portion for you as the result. If he's the one, the only thing that can rescue you, the only thing that can change your lot, the only one that can give you rest, if that's true of God and Jesus, then when you get pushed through the other end of suffering, and he's the only one that's left, how sweet is that portion? Now, we could bound this all up in eternity, because there's a truth to that. But I want you to sit in the reality that even as you suffer today, even as this is your lot, and you're really wrestling with it, that the Lord is your portion in that. He is with you in the suffering. He's made a way through you through the cross that he will be all that you ever need, and you can rest and bank on him. Let's pray. God, we help, uh, help us um, I think about that phrase, um, hinds feet in high places. In the words of Habakkuk, Lord, where though the fig tree does not blossom and there's no sheep in the stalls, no cattle in the pen, no grape on the vine. And even though we look at our lot and it seems depleted and we seem lost, just lost, that even there we're told that you make our feet like the feet of the deer. E- even in the lowest of the lows, you enable us to go on the heights. And the only way that can be true is if you truly are our portion, our, our, our true lot in this life. So I pray for us, like I know there's a lot for that to like work out. I pray that we would... Uh, Believe as we're going through it that you are our portion. Because you're our portion, because you're a Savior who died, we too can die and know we will be raised. We can too uh, carry our cross with you and know that you will bring resurrection and redemption and life through this lot that you've given to us. So help us, God, to trust even as we await your redemption. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.